Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is Please Go On. Our guests this week are Lee McIntyre and Jonathan Rausch, who wrote an op-ed for The Post last month about what they see as a raging war on truth. Lee is a research fellow at Boston University's Center for Philosophy and History of Science and the author of Post-Truth, Jonathan is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the author of The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. Their message is that many Americans still don't recognize we are engaged in such a war and that the problem is much deeper than Donald Trump. They argue that our country has been systemically targeted for years with what they call epistemic warfare. That is, with attacks on the credibility of the mainstream media, academia, government agencies, and other institutions and professionals we all rely on to keep us collectively moored to facts. Here is our conversation. I'm a philosopher, so I've been interested in truth for a long, long time, but I got very interested in the question of truth when it started to be attacked in science, and then later when it started to be attacked in general, uh, based on the uh, post-truth political problems in the United States. That's Lee McIntyre, and here is his co-author, Jonathan Rausch. It really bugs us that people are talking about this, uh, you know, post-truth environment as if it just happened one day because of polarization or, you know, an asteroid hit. This is being done to us, and that's when we realize someone's just got to start saying that, so we did. You opened your piece by reflecting on Jade Helm 15. For those who don't remember the kerfuffle from 2015, word spread online that a routine military exercise in the Southwest called Jade Helm 15 was a plot by Barack Obama to impose martial law and seize everyone's guns. So far did this claim spread that Texas Governor Greg Abbott actually ordered the state guard to monitor the exercise. I think we have an obligation to answer questions of citizens and uh, by us working with the Special Operations Forces, uh, we're able to provide information to citizens who are concerned about it. Back then, Americans responded to the bizarre conspiracy theory, mostly with exasperation and bemusement. But you noted in the piece that the paranoia was fueled by more than conservative bloggers. Former CIA director Michael Hayden later said that Russian propagandists were behind that campaign. Looking back, Jade Helm 15 really does feel like it was the harbinger of so much that followed over the next six years. How does this fit in with your frame of a broader war on truth? So it was a dry run, really, for Stop the Steal and a great deal of what we're seeing today. It wasn't the first, by the way. On 
of 2014, there were reports of a giant chemical plant explosion in Louisiana. People thought it was a strange hoax. It wasn't a strange hoax. It was the Internet Research Agency testing our networks to see if they could plant fake news. And then Jade Help came along. And if we'd been awake, we would have realized at that point that we had some pretty devious actors in the system. What we didn't realize was that Donald Trump and the Republican Party would use these same tactics on a much larger scale domestically and take it to the next level. This often happens with disinformation campaigns. They are intended to disorient people. And one way to disorient people is for them not to take what they're hearing seriously, to make it seem like a joke, to make it seem absurd. And so they, uh, they don't know what to do with that information. They're confused. This happens all the time. You guys wrote in the op-ed that the greatest threat right now is coming from within, from Americans themselves. I think this is important because it's become so convenient and too easy for people to blame outsiders like the Russians. But the Internet Research Agency is capitalizing on vulnerabilities within. And as you note, the attacks on the concept of objective truth aren't new either. They've just been supercharged in the digital era. When do you think they really started showing up in a big way? Were there other key turning points besides Jade Helm 15 that led us to where we are now? I think the initial probes from the Russians in hindsight were important because as Michael Hayden says, that's 2014, 2015 was when they figured, figured out they could really play. But I think that the Russians actually are, are minor actors compared to what happened in 2016. In that year, Donald Trump launches a campaign in which 70, 70% of his checkable claims, according to PolitiFact, are entirely or mostly false versus 25% for Hillary Clinton. Now, 25% is too much, but politicians do that. 70%, that's Russian-style firehose of falsehood conspiracy-mongering campaign. That's Russian-style propaganda in which what you're hearing doesn't need to be consistent, logical, grounded in facts. Uh, it's whatever comes out of his mouth. In hindsight, that was a turning point. We, we, at the time, we thought maybe he's just a crazy person. Maybe he's a sociopath. In fact, he was adapting Russian-style disinformation to U.S. politics, and he has ever since. That doesn't necessarily mean that Trump was a Russian puppet. doesn't mean that he wasn't. But it does mean that he was copying some of the tactics that had been at work in Russia and in other countries for a long time. What was new is that the United States had never seen this. We had never been the subject of a disinformation campaign like that, especially launched on us from within. Um, you know, the, the U.S. Army is concerned with disinformation, information warfare from the enemy, but this was coming from our president. The Stop the Steal campaign you describe in the piece as the point of no return, and you said it's been devastatingly effective. The, the polls are really shocking on the percentage of Americans who now believe falsely the election was stolen. Why was Stop the Steal the point of no return? The reason it happened is because denialism has been growing in this country for 70 years. It started with the cigarette companies denying that uh, cigarettes could cause cancer, and it rolled through climate change and the ozone hole and acid rain, you know, all the way up through COVID denial. I mean, science denial was, in a sense, a warm-up campaign for reality denial 
what, what I call post-truth. I, I define post-truth as the political subordination of reality. And in my book, Post-Truth, I argue that what happened is that right-wing operatives looked at just how successful science denial had been in this country and around the world for 60 or 70 years and said, my gosh, if they can deny the truth about science, we can deny the truth about anything we want. Uh, and notice the warm-up campaign that Trump started with, how many people were at his inauguration, whether it rained on his inauguration. It was, and then he continued it, continued it, drip, drip over the years, and he ended with stop the steal. At that point, uh, people are um, groomed they have, uh, they're prepped, they're ready to believe whatever their leader says, because he's been saying it uh, for so long. And it's the point of no return, I believe, Jonathan may disagree with me, but I, I believe, because that was when it wasn't just belief, it became action. That's when denialism became not just protest, but, uh, you know, a, a form of insurrection or rebellion. And, and had human consequences. I think that Stop the Steal was the point of no return in the sense that it finally proved what we feared, which was that Russian-style disinformation was something not just Trump could do, that it was going to be institutionalized in the Republican Party. Trump lost his Twitter feed. He lost Facebook. He lost the presidency. He became a less significant actor, though still significant, but we saw that the Republican rank and file and many, many Republican leaders, I would argue most of them at that point figured out that they were invested in stop the steal and in firehose of falsehood, the spreading of conspiracy theories, fake information, undermining democracy. And that's when I think we have to realize that these tactics do not depend on Donald Trump to be effective. They have now, I think, turned the Republican Party into an institutional propaganda organ. And that's a long-term problem. That genie is very hard to put back in the bottle. Let's talk about putting the genie back in the bottle. How might that happen? What would it take? The short answer is the starting place, which is what we said in our article, which is that Americans are, are naive to these attacks in two senses. One is that it's just hard for us to believe that an American, a president, and his political party would ever even do something like apply disinformation and propaganda tactics seen in places like Lenin's Russia and the Third Reich and now Putin's Russia. So we kind of don't want to see the fact that this is going on right in front of our nose, which makes us more vulnerable to it. We're also naive in a second sense, in the epidemiological sense, which is the U.S. population has never encountered these tactics. So both institutionally and individually, we are very poorly prepared to, uh, to outmaneuver them, to become resilient to them. We're just starting to figure this stuff out. So this is like a wave of smallpox that hits an indigenous population. So the short answer is that the first step is to realize that we are under an epistemic attack, that this is not about just the failure of institutions, Vietnam, Watergate, the collapse of religion, stagnant white middle-class male wages. This is about a deliberate attempt by nameable individuals and organizations to exploit cognitive and social weaknesses to manipulate information in the political environment. So the start of this is realizing the nature of the problem. It is an attack by Americans on other Americans. 
Then in terms of how you respond to it, it's, it's going to be an all of society response, many levels, many institutions, everything from changing um, product design at Facebook and Twitter to better internet literacy instruction for kids, a more sophisticated media establishment is getting much better at that. The establishment of watchdogs, organizations around the world that are watching the disinformation networks, getting early warning out, notifying social media. Uh, I could go on and on, but it's lots of different things. It's a society-wide effort to build back resilience, but it all starts with admitting the nature of the problem. If you're talking about how to fight it, there is a model, and the model is what's been happening with the pushback against science denial because scientists have been dealing with this problem for long enough that they finally got some empirical evidence in hand that shows that you can push back against denialist beliefs and sometimes win. Not always, but sometimes. You know, how often have you seen porn on uh, Facebook or a beheading? You don't see it, and it's because they police for it. It's got to be the worst job at Facebook, but they have somebody who guts that stuff out before we ever see it. But they don't do that with disinformation. Why not? Because it's not in their interest to do so. So those are the sorts of hard questions we're going to have to start to ask, not just about you know how we put on a mask, how we inoculate ourselves from fake news, etc., but how we can cut down on the flow of disinformation. NPR had a story the other day that showed that there were a dozen people were responsible for 65% of the anti-vax propaganda on Twitter. There are not that many people creating the disinformation. There's a huge audience for the disinformation. I wanted to add a more optimistic note. I'm not quite optimistic, but I am hopeful. And one reason is that we're already starting to see a lot of adjustments, and they're making a difference. The 2020 election was much better secured against disinformation than the 2016 election, because a lot of people were on the watch for it. Their guard was up. But more broadly, we've been in a mess like this before, not this bad, but still pretty bad. 19th century American journalism, which was a swamp of fake news and hyper-partisanship. And the problem with that business model is customers don't like it in the long run because it's a fetid sewer. And digital media companies are also discovering that in the long term, the business model where they just spread outrage and fake news is not going to work. So I think actually, if you think of this as an environmental problem and a community that's drinking foul water with lead in it, you realize that that's not a sustainable situation. And people start looking naturally for ways to clean it up. And I think that process is underway. I'm not saying we automatically beat these tactics because they're very sophisticated and they're being deployed intentionally by smart people. But uh, I also think there's some natural counterforces and we're starting to see those move into action. One of the things that I've been struck by, and you've obviously written a lot on cancel culture, and you say in the piece, left-wing attacks on objectivity date to at least the 70s with the rise of academic trends like deconstructionism and postmodernism. And then you had conservative media begin attacking truth systematically with the rise of demagogues like Rush Limbaugh. It does feel like there's sort of this escalation cycle where even now with you know, you talk, you heard people talking about the need for safe spaces, and now you hear people trying to cancel the teaching of critical race theory. And that a lot of times 
both sides of our political discourse are weaponizing these trends when they've been used against them. How do you stop that cycle of escalation? James, you're, I think you're right and you're perceptive that, that these tactics can amplify each other on the left and the right. They can point to each other and say, look, the other side's doing it. They can learn from each other. But I also like to point out to people that the kinds of post-truth disinformational tactics that Lee and I are talking about are not themselves ideological. They are their weapons. They can be used by either side, and they have been historically used by either side. And once you realize that, then you can also realize that there are ways to talk about controversial issues like critical race theory that do involve using social coercion, intimidation, and so forth to silence opposing points of view and suppress pluralism. But there are also ways to talk about it that welcome pluralism and other points of view. And increasingly progressives, especially the last two years or so, have come to realize that all the canceling techniques that are deployed against conservatives can also be and often are deployed against progressives. And that means that increasingly progressives are waking up to the fact that they also have a stake in protecting pluralist culture, open inquiry. And that to me is also, we'll see, but I think that's also a hopeful sign, kind of breaking this cyclical dynamic that you talk about. Lee, why don't you close us out here? Jonathan gave us a reason to be optimistic. What gives you cause to be hopeful? Or is there nothing? Are, are we all doomed? Every time I say that I'm hopeful about something, they manage to drain a little more water out of the pool. It's hard to be hopeful uh, in, in some cases, but uh, he, here's, here's a, a very important thing. Kids are much more attuned to this issue than you would think. And the time to teach media literacy, the time to teach people to be skeptical of what they're hearing is when they're kids. And in my book, uh, toward the end, I talk about a teacher out in California named Scott Bedley, who I think it was either, I think it was third or fifth grade. I can't remember which one. And he had something called the fake news game where he would teach the kids a rubric for being skeptical readers, you know, to, to ask, you know, is this copyrighted? Is it, is it dated? Uh, is, is, is there a name on the story? Uh, have you looked at other things by this person? Where does this person work? Uh, does it sound, you know, plausible? Is it supposed to get your emotions involved? He had this whole rubric that he taught them. And the kids loved it so much that they wouldn't go to recess until they played one more instance of the fake news game. I think that you can make this, uh, you can make that a reflex. And the reason I say so is because if you go back to the era that Jonathan was talking about before in the 1890s of yellow journalism, people didn't expect objectivity from media. They, they I mean, we're spoiled now. Uh, or we were until recently. They didn't expect it. They knew that newspapers had a point of view. They knew that they were often being, you know, led in one direction or, or another. Kids are naturally skeptical, I think. You might think that kids are overly trusting, but I, I once taught logic to a group of fifth graders. They're naturally skeptical. They're little budding philosophers, and I think that you can teach them without too much effort to really learn how to, to resist this. Well, Lee and Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. This was terrific. Thank you. Really appreciate it. 
While our conversation ended on an optimistic note, there are daily reminders that truth continues to be under assault. Former President Trump continues to falsely insist this week, for instance, that he really won the 2020 election. We will never give up our search for truth and justice for what happened in the corrupt presidential election of 2020, because without that truth, we cannot have an honest election in 2022 or 2024, no matter what they want to tell you. Americans continue to seem hopelessly divided. So much of the dialogue feels like it's happening between people who are not operating from a shared set of facts. But as Lee and Jonathan wrote, the first step toward winning the war on truth is to accept that we are in one. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock with editing from Allison Michaels and Michael Duffy. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. You can listen and follow us on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to read Lee and Jonathan's op-ed, you can find the link in our show notes. I'm James Holman, and I'll be back next Friday with another edition of Please Go On, because there's always more to say. <laughs>